Hello. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. Universal primary education by 2015 is one of the United Nations Millennium Development Goals, and great progress has been made in expanding access to education. But are children learning what they need to succeed? Now, scholars and policymakers are talking about access plus learning. Rebecca Winthrop, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Universal Education at Brookings, explains how global measures of learning outcomes can be developed and why learning matters for boys and girls around the world in both peaceful and conflict-affected countries. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, You direct here at Brookings the Center for Universal Education. What is universal education? It is a very good question. It sounds lovely, doesn't it? Uh, And it is basically describing a vision where every kid in the world, no matter where they're born, can have access to a quality education. So you've written recently about access to education, but you've also started talking about access plus learning. Mm -hmm. Can you explain uh, what the difference between those two concepts is? Yeah. And it's an important distinction as we're coming up to the next set of Millennium Development Goals. Basically, for the last... um, a little over a decade, the major focus of the global uh, education policy has been on getting kids into school and getting kids into primary school in particular. And the assumption behind that when that Millennium Development Goal was made was that uh, if you get kids into school, they will automatically um, progress and develop their competencies and 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 learn along the way. And that has turned out to be a a false assumption, unfortunately. So what we do know now is that that you both need to get kids into school and you need to focus heavily on making sure that all the range of processes and inputs are there so that they can come out on the other end uh, learning something. So how do you approach the problem Uh, as a scholar at the Brookings Mm -hmm. Institution, working with other practitioners at think tanks, Where is the sort of on-the-ground, if it's applicable, implementation of these ideas transpiring? Right. Well, one of the first things you have to kind of figure out is what what is the state of play? Where are young people at today in terms of both their their access to education Mm -hmm. and the competencies they're developing through that education? Uh, And the access piece in terms of just reach of education systems around the world – about half the kids in the world uh, are in some form of early childhood education program. Most of them are the well-to-do. These are largely not the poor. Um, in terms of primary school, we have a pretty good picture there. Uh, m- about 90% of kids around the world are enrolled in primary school. In developing countries, it's around 80%. And then it falls off at secondary school level again uh, sort of greatly. So that's the sort of bell curve of just getting, reaching kids into school. And Mm -hmm. then what we know is some numbers around their competencies once they're there. There's about 250 million kids who around the world are not learning the basics in reading or math um, despite having spent four years in school. So they're in school and they're not necessarily A learning. lot of them are in school. A majority are in school. And they uh, are not able base- to do basic, basic uh, literacy skills or numeracy skills. And I mean basic. There's a lot of research that's out there showing that you have high percentages of kids, 20 30% of kids going all the way through primary school. 
So, you you know, if you have kids, you can imagine you send your kid to first grade, second grade, you know, third grade, fourth grade, whatever, all the way up to fifth. And kids are coming out not, you know, 20, 30 percent of them in, in some countries not being able to recognize a single word. So it is a massive crisis, really. You know, because if you can't learn to read in the first couple years of school, you are absolutely not going to be gaining from the rest of the subjects you're learning, whether it's social studies or science, et cetera. So that's, that's what we talk about first. You know, what's the scope of the problem? Okay. Uh, and then in turn, you have to break it down. You have to figure out where are those kids that are being left out or ill-served by the system some of them are here in the U.S. And it's, it, you know, in the past, we've talked a lot about poor countries, rich countries, the developing right. world, the developed world, the global north, the global south. These are all terms that people use. And it is useful to think about that uh, breakdown when you look at where the first step of where we at, how are young people doing around the world? Um, because sub-Saharan Africa and South uh, West Asia in particular are the pockets of the world that have have the hardest um, road to go in terms of educational access. But more and more we're, we're talking now as we move forward um, into the sort of post-2015 global development agenda about low learning level communities. Because in middle income countries, including in high income countries, even here in the US, there are pockets of massive exclusion and neglect where kids are not accessing education that gives them any substantive advantage or development of any substantive skills. So that's the first step. And the second step is trying to figure out what types of interventions and policy levers will make a difference and make a change. Um, and working with a range of partners to try to get um, uptake on, on those that have evidence behind them uh, and then trialing and, and testing those that need to be tried. I'm thinking about countries like Nigeria, mm -hmm. maybe Cambodia, India. Do those countries have the capacity to measure education outcomes in their communities the way that I, I know there's a lot of measures of education here in the United States? And what are those kinds of countries doing to contribute to this global understanding? Right. It's a really good question. And the answer is they have the potential, but they currently do not. Um, there's a number of countries around the world um, that don't actually even really systematically assess learning outcomes. If you look in the global database that collects all the statistics around education that each country tracks, and it's a huge amount of data, the vast majority, in fact, close to 100% of those data points are around access to school. There is not... Um, at least globally tracked data around learning outcomes. Are kids learning as they progress through their educational career? There are some countries that track that a lot. The United States tracks learning outcomes more than any other country in the world. Um, and there is definitely an art and science to doing it well to getting the results you want. But there's a lot of places that aren't even tracking the bare minimum um, where countries, I'm thinking of countries like Malawi or other countries, where kids can go through their whole sort of school system uh, the, and, or go through their whole education. And at the end of secondary school, they take their final you know, exam. A lot of countries have an exam to be able to leave and get your certificate that you completed your education at secondary school. They take their final exam and they fail. Now, those kids should have a big percentage, half or more. 
Um, though, you know, we should have caught those kids along the ways and those countries should have caught those kids along the ways. And I would say that there is a difference between a Nigerian and India and a Malawi and, you know, a Laos. Um, because Nigeria and India have fi the financial capacity to actually commit to reforming their system. It's not necessarily for a massive lack of resources, financial resources. What they don't necessarily have is a system where they can prioritize education reform and it gets delivered in a way to make it real on the ground in classrooms. There are other countries that need both the delivery capacity and policy fortitude as well as a significant amount of resources investment that their pocketbooks are just too small. So how do you and, and uh, your colleagues in this arena help those countries get there? And I'm thinking particularly of your Learning Metrics Task mm -hmm. Force, the work you're doing with UNESCO. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. We um, came to this work um, in partnership with the United Nations, in particular um, UNESCO, and they have a statistical institute called the UNESCO Institute of Statistics that is in charge of collecting global data on education. Uh, and we basically wrote a re report on our end called the Global Compact on Learning, which um, was a call for a new vision in global education. And, you know, if the last sort of under the Millennium Development Goals, the vision was really around access to primary school. And we said in that report, let's rejigger. We need a new vision. We need a vision that is expanded, that it goes from early childhood primary to secondary and looks at both access and quality learning outcomes, those those pieces, um, and has a heavy focus on lifting the, the marginalized um, up. So those uh, kids and communities that are really left behind targeted attention to them. And one of the things that we recommended in that report was that we need to find a better way to track educational progress besides just school enrollment rates. Um, and that actually the education community needs a bit of an internal looking exercise where we get some consensus around how could you measure things like learning outcomes. Because to this point, we have not had any consensus in the education community on how you would be able to track and measure learning right. outcomes. And there is a veritable fruit salad of different types of cross-border uh, international learning assessment studies and tests. You've heard of PISA, I would imagine. That's one. There's a lot of others. And they all work with different countries, and they all trust different things at different grade levels. Um, so that's fine as long as it's useful for the countries and they have different purposes. But it's very hard to um, have some sort of global goals when you don't even have a shared metric about what you would test. So that was the real purpose behind forming this uh, task force on um, measuring learning called the Better Measuring Learning Outcomes called the Learning Metrics Task Force, which we jointly did with UNESCO Institute of Statistics. And the exercise there, it, it, it's the first phase has been done. Um, it was 18 months, and the exercise there was to build consensus within the education community really around um, two key questions. What learning is important for all young people, no matter where they're born? And indeed, 
there uh, was a list of core competencies that people felt very strongly every kid should know, no matter if they're in Mongolia or the Bronx. Uh, and then secondly, how should those competencies be measured? And most of them, people, uh, the consensus was most of them should be left to national governments to figure out. But there was a small core set that were so important um, that they should be tracked in every country in the world and hence serve as some global measures. And those are basically around literacy and numeracy and then uh, it, it, in primary, secondary, and then this two sort of, I call them bookend um, indicators that we haven't yet had, which is our, about early childhood, are young people coming to school ready to learn mm -hmm. across a number of dimensions, social, emotional, physical, cognitive, et cetera. And then the other sort of bookend is around skills, youth skills. Are young people getting out of their education the skills they need to succeed in their life and livelihoods? So those were the main pieces um, that everybody agreed should be tracked globally. And you've called those the seven domains of learning. Yeah, the, there's, there is um, lots of sevens in, in that the task forces come out with in their final recommendations. Uh, there's three sets of sevens, and they don't always directly uh, align one for one. The first set of seven is that the task force came up with seven domains of learning, um, which basically represent areas of competencies that education systems everywhere should help children and youth develop. Um, and that's the question around, you know, is there a core set of things all children should learn? And then out of those seven domains of learning with the number, you know, of, there's several competencies in each domain. Seven competencies have been lifted up, or seven areas of measurement have been lifted up for global tracking. And then finally, the task force recommended, um, you know, sort of seven main recommendations, which um, include a range of things around, you know, shifting the paradigm uh, in terms of our vision for global education, tracking these indicators, building capacities of countries, and importantly, something that, that we need to do a lot more of is thinking about um, assessment as a public good and how do you actually set up a system that supports countries to do this on their own in a way that's transparent um, and data is being able to be used regularly by policymakers, teachers, civil society groups to actually at the end of the day improve learning outcomes. Uh, let me switch to the question of implications for right. children not either being in school or not getting out of school, what they can get. And I'm going to quote from one of your recent mm -hmm. reports. Children born in low-income, conflict-affected countries are twice as likely to lack access to clean water and more than three times as likely to not attend school than children living in peaceful, low-income countries. I think it's mm -hmm. interesting that you made mm -hmm. make the comparison between low-income countries that are conflict-affected and not conflict mm -hmm. Affected, but more broadly, what are the implications of children uh, through their educational lives not getting the kind of education that they should be getting? Right. It's a really good question, and framing it in that way, I think, is incredibly important because you can see where um, the world actually falls short if you don't give young people an education in such extreme places that are, you know, experiencing civil war, or state fragility, or military extremism, et cetera. So for those contexts, 
um, a, a large bulk of the kids who are out of school. There's almost close to 60 million kids out of primary school and you know a little more than 70 million kids out of secondary school. But the vast majority of them, a large bulk of them, are in countries that are affected by conflict. Uh, and if you think about it, eventually those countries will need to come Usually the trajectories have some sort of peace agreement. They'll need to rebuild. They will need to move forward and reconstitute themselves. And if you have a citizenry that has not had the basic access to education that one would require for um, rebuilding a nation, it is incredibly difficult to sustain the peace. So even at a very basic level, there's macro implications for nations for not investing in their young people in terms of peace and stability. Of course, one of the, the clear other implications at a macro level is is countries are losing out massively on um, their economic well-being because, you know, every year of schooling increases economic productivity of individuals, it grows GDP, etc. And so you're you're really losing out when you don't educate your young people. And then, of course, a, a final sort of third big implication is for the individuals themselves. If young, you know, there's lots of data, particularly if you think about it from a gender lens, where you know education really can can provide a virtuous cycle up to the things we want, versus sort of a vicious cycle down. And you know, young women who have increased levels of education, have healthier born children, um, their children have higher levels of education and health in turn, um, and they're more productive, they can contribute back to their communities more, they're earning more, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that, that's a real loss when you don't have that. Is there a gender gap in uh, childhood access to education in, in this uh, context between boys and girls? There is. Now, it's hard to see when you aggregate up at a big global level. Globally, girls and boys are accessing primary education more or less in the same numbers, more or less. Still, girls are a, a little bit under. I mean, that's when you aggregate up, you know, all the hundreds of millions of kids in primary school around the world. When you look, however, really at sort of local context, where are those girls that are missing out? Um, you will find that they are primarily in really rural communities um, and living in families that are in the bottom quintile socioeconomically. So, you know, for example, girls who live in rural areas, poor families are 16 times less likely to go to school than boys who um, live in urban areas and are are uh, living with families um, that are in the top quintile in terms socioeconomically. So you really have to kind of look under the national aggregate numbers to s figure out where those gaps are. And I should note that in some reg regions of the world, we're seeing this more and more in some regions of the world, uh, boys are the ones who are left behind. Um, in the Caribbean, for example, um, they drop out much more. Uh, than girls and, and in various other regions of the world and some Arab countries, et cetera. So, you know, it's not a, a very clean picture. It's, a, it's actually a, a great success story in development. Uh, in 2000, when the Millennium Development Goals were made, there was a clear gender parity gap 
between girls and boys, and girls were by far quite behind. So there still are huge pockets of, of inequity, but a lot of ways girls have caught up. Well, let's talk then about perhaps the most famous girl mm. in education, perhaps one of the most famous girls in the world, period, Malala Yousafzai. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe she's from Pakistan, mm -hmm. from the rural Swat Valley. Um, can you talk about her significance for global education, for um, children's rights even? Right. Yeah. She's very special, but she is, after all, a young kid. I mean, she's, I believe, 16. And she's if you 16. meet her, she's like any other 16-year-old you meet, um, except that she has incredible, incredible internal strength and courage and commitment and I have to say, I think a lot of girls in her community have the same. And there's a lot of girls around the world who have the same. And these are girls who go to school every day, despite the death threats, despite the bombings on girls' schools, despite you know, even if they don't live in areas like northern Nigeria or, or in certain parts of Pakistan or Afghanistan that where you have education attacked on a daily basis. You can have all sorts of barriers to girls' education in terms of social stigma and and parental supports. So it, it's a struggle for many of these girls just to um, assert their rights. Now, Malala, so in, in, in what some ways she's unexceptional in terms of she's not the only one. I don't mean she personally is unexceptional, but she is not the only one in the world who has faced this struggle. Right. I understand she was one of four or five girls who, who were shot right. by the Taliban last right. year. And, and attacks on education happen routinely um, in many countries, at least well over 30 countries in the world over the last, you know, sort of five, six years. There's good evidence to show that this is a rising trend. Attacks on schools, attacks on girls, attacks on teachers, etc. But... It is significant, I think, for Malala to be embraced as she has been by the global community because in many ways she's a symbol. She's a symbol of the force of youth um, and the next generation standing up for what it is they want. She's a symbol of uh, young, the strength of young women um, claiming their rights. She's a symbol for uh, a world that, that believes that all children should have an access to education no matter what or where they live. And it's important, I think, in terms of a broad advocacy agenda and a broad awareness in, in other countries like the United States or other places that don't necessarily think about these issues in the general populace on a day-to-day -day basis, it's important to have these sort of symbols and global figures that can really rally and motivate people to a cause that has been there for a very long time. Well, you, in uh, previous work, have been to Pakistan. You've done field work there and in many other countries with the International Rescue Committee. Can you talk about uh, that work, how it informs your present research here at Brookings? Yeah. It, the, the, the organization, the International Rescue Committee, is a really wonderful organization. It is a very large uh, humanitarian aid NGO. It's the biggest partner for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. I worked there for eight years, and I, I still am very close with their leadership and, and, and support the organization. And it's one of those places where at the beginning, 
the founders of the organization, it's been around for many decades, said, you know, we should not attract attention to what we do. We should do our good work and fly under the radar. So it is actually has a culture of not advertising what it does. And in many ways that uh, appealed to me because it really attracted a group of people um, who were quite dedicated to the mission and the cause. And it was very, very uh, uh, important for me to sort of, quote unquote, be in the trenches where I was, I was working, I had a portfolio of 20 countries, I was head of their education department, and we were working to rebuild education systems and to uh, education systems post-conflict and to um, develop education systems for those people who are out completely without a state, basically refugees, or in some cases internally displaced. And that in many ways was a fantastic grounding for doing bigger global policy work. I mean, I later went on to do um, academic work and, and more global policy work because I was kept seeing how many good ideas at country level were held back or restricted by poorly informed global policies. So that's what motivates me um, when I come to work every day to make sure we get the sort of global policy environment right in a way that can best support all the actors and initiatives that are happening at country level for um, for education for young people. I think that's so interesting, uh, the way you put that, the uh, the policy environment. Uh, I've done podcasts with Richard Rees, for mm -hmm. example, with Lawrence Chandy on, on uh, education, on eradicating mm -hmm. global poverty, and, and other scholars. And you, you often talk about the, the policy framework. Mm -hmm. So you've done the field work. There are still people doing mm -hmm. great work in the field, but now you're at the global policy level. I just think that's really interesting. Uh, and as the leader of the Center for Universal Education, what's then coming up on your agenda? Well, for us um, at the center, we uh, basically have gone through a couple of, of, of big phases uh, in terms of intent focus. We, we were intently focusing when I first came on. One of the first things we intently focused on was setting the vision for global education policy or rather putting forward a vision that we hoped would be taken up by those actors who, who actually do codify and set a vision for global education. So we were really focused on that um, sort of what is the next agenda going to look like. Then we switched, once we really put that out, to really focusing on policy uptake of that vision. Um, and in fact, we, we, we were surprised at how quickly we were able to to do that, we wrote quite a few things, and one of after after you know one seminal report, we got a call from the Secretary General's office asking us to advise them on a new global education initiative. The, the UN Secretary. The General. UN Secretary General. Yes, good point. <laughs> Lots of Secretary Generals, and he a lot of what we had been recommending got taken up into his new um, five-year global education initiative and embedded in various uh, global global institutions. So now our now we feel like okay the the vision is on track more or less and and it's owned by a you know the right policy makers who need to own it. And next in our mind where we can add value is really trying to think about how can we um, help with the knowledge and evidence base for executing that vision. So in other words there's a huge amount of 
of work to be done around even figuring out how the financing for this broader education vision can be mobilized and how you can make better use of, of, of education resources writ large in, in education. So both growing the pie and better using the pie. Um, secondly, there's a huge amount of work to be done around really how do you scale access plus learning? We have a very clear model that's been successful on, on scaling access to primary school over the last uh, uh, decade. Um, it's around making building schools, making schools free, making them compulsory, all of which is crucial and important. But how, what are the pieces that need to be scaled so you get the access plus learning piece? Uh, and how do you really reach um, the marginalized and, in a way that's scalable? And then the, the third piece is really how do you better measure and track with, with transparency of data the progress of education systems, and in particular, um, the learning piece, because that's the, the part that's been weakest to date. Well, it's very important work, Rebecca. I thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. To learn more about Rebecca and her work on global education, visit brookings.edu slash learning metrics.